uh, guys, uh, October is not only the month of the missions conference at Grace Evan, it is also the, the month where we nominate uh, men for the office of elder. That's what these blue things are for. Every month, uh, all October, you have, you have the whole month of October to nominate men that you think should be leading Grace of Ann. So in, in one sense, it's not only the Missions Conference Month, it's also a month of, that, that our church government is kind of front and center. So normally, every year, I take this Wednesday night. By the way, we're going to take, take a few weeks off, two, maybe three, from our study of Romans. I've got something else I want to do the next uh, time I'm with you. It'll just give you a little bit of a respite on the book of Romans, and uh, I know you'll all be glad about that. But, but tonight, I'd like to talk to you about the defilement of church government, okay? <laughs> we'll, we'll try to make it undefiling. But in, in, in the minds of many, what, what could be more unspiritual than, than church government? You mean there's, there's really politics um, in, in the church? Well, it really depends on what you mean by politics. If, if, you, if you have in your minds that there's some kind of backroom, smoke-filled, arm-twisting, uh, money-exchanging thing that we see in state and local governments, no, we don't have any of that. But um, the, the, the word politics comes from a, a Greek word polis, which means city. It, it's a it's an it's an organizational term, and every organization um, has to have a certain structure to it. Um, it has to have rules and administration, in, including the church. and And I say that to you, um, but it's really not me, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the The Bible gives us some directives as to how we might get that done. Okay, and I want to show you that tonight. That uh, church government is not some kind of um, uh, human invention. There's all kinds of biblical insight that we, I hope that you'll be able to see in terms of how church is supposed to be done decently and in order. So what I want to start with is I want to start with the theocracy. Guys, do you know? have you ever heard that word, the theocracy? Um, does anybody know what that word is? That's a... Um, it's a it's a government by for or of God. It only lasted. Um, uh, oh, how about that? Um, it only lasted about a hundred years. Uh, it only it existed <coughs> under David and Solomon, but it was uh, the government of Israel was a the, it was a theocratic rule. It was a government by God. And um, but I want you to take a look at this if, if you will. If you'll go to First Chronicles. Chapter 22. We're not going to study that, but I just want to show you something. Um, First Chronicles 22. This is uh, towards the end of David's life. Actually, um, 23.1, he says, When David was old and full of days, he made Solomon his son king over Israel. That is, this is, this is the final chapter of David's life. Um, but I want you to notice what David does as kind of the final act of his kingship. Um, chapter 22, he starts and David prepares for temple building because he's communicating that at the center of Israel will be the worship of Yahweh. Then we come to chapter 23. And in chapter 23, 
David organizes the Levites. In chapter 24, David organizes the priests. In chapter 25, (coughs) pardon me, (coughs) David organizes the musicians. In chapter 26, he organizes the gatekeepers. And then in chapter 26, from verse 20 and forward, he organizes the treasurers and the other officials. And then in chapter 27, he organizes the military and the secondary kind of tribal leaders. Do you see what he's doing, folks? David is about to die, and before he does, knowing that the theocracy needs certain organizations for it to run well, he begins to organize. And by the way, very interestingly, he starts with the church. He starts with the Levites and the priests and the musicians and the the gatekeepers. He organizes the worship of God's people, and then he organizes the uh, the, the military and the other, say, uh, smaller leaders. Before David leaves, before he dies, he leaves behind uh, instructions as to how things are supposed to run. Now, here's my point. As ugly as as government and as ugly as as politics might have become to us, and 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 understandably so. As uh, what you see here is, as David is about to exit stage left, he puts in place for the benefit of the theocracy. He puts in place an organizational scheme that permits and allows and and um, designs a better and a safer and a more efficient functioning entity. The theocracy, the government of God, had a need for government. Chuck Swindoll calls uh, church government a, um, a necessary evil, and he's, he's probably right, as he usually is. But guys, um, in, in light of the fallenness of man, in light of what sin has done to us all, our, our proclivity to sin, every organization, including the church, must have some structure um, under which it can function decently and in order. There's got to be some administration so that it can accomplish its task. One of the things that we've sought to do in terms of designing a church government is to maintain a, um, I guess you would call it a conviction. It really comes from Francis Schaeffer. And guys, you've never heard this. This is wonderful. Francis Schaeffer <coughs> talks about minimum form and maximum freedom. The point is, once you get ready to design a government, it has to reflect this. Minimum form, maximum freedom. So you want a minimum of rules, a minimum of structure, but you got to have some. But whatever structure, whatever rules you put in place cannot undercut maximum freedom. Let me give you an example, which is kind of funny to me, but... 
Uh, this came up years ago, and it's your fault. Um, all of you raising these lovely young women that are coming through our junior high and senior high programs, and here's what we found. We were taking these trips, you know, to Florida, and um, your daughters were wearing bathing suits that were... Um, skimpy. And um, so, I mean, we agonized over this, guys, because we want minimum form to put a rule in place goes against almost my grain. But some are needed. And so we came up with this. In fact, I don't know whether you remember Michelle Hill. Michelle Hill used to get your, your daughters together and she used to teach a class for, for uh, senior high or for, yeah, senior high student, uh, female students on just modesty. And so ultimately, we brought into being a piece of form. And the piece of form was that on a church trip, the girls had to wear a one-piece bathing suit. Now, guys, do you see... Um, I, I was so reluctant <laughs> to establish a rule about how you dress. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, can you see that because of what sin has done to us, because of our proclivities to sin, some rules are needed. Minimum ones, that is, minimum form, maximum freedom, but some have to be put in place. Some organization, some policy, some rule because all of us have been so ravaged by the fall. Now, guys, the Old Testament is not the only place where church government is discussed. I assure you, the New Testament is, is in no way silent about the matter of church government, um, which we're going to look at more closely later. But, guys, I'm just trying to start like this. You cannot disparage church government per se. That is, um, I, I understand why we don't like the whole idea of government, uh, and we, we, it's yucky, and let's not dirty our hands with that stuff. Let's just, let's just do the things that are spiritual. But guys, I, I do know that that governments can be disillusioning, they, uh, including church governments. But government in and of itself is not unspiritual. Satan knows, guys, um, <laughs> that a man unrestrained is a man that is more than likely to um, do things that he perhaps is ashamed of. Folks, listen to me. Think about it. Next to moral failures in the clergy, 
What is what comes in number two in terms of issues that split churches? <laughs> it's church government, guys. It's um, whereas you may you may want to stay away from it and not get your hands dirty with all the the, the wrangling that's going on and etc. But um, you you might find the the whole subject of church government to be somewhat boring. But it is fights over church government that do more churches than just about anything out there. And so, we wanted you to kind of understand this government. <laughs> the government that that is in place that we hope observes this principle. Minimum form, maximum freedom. Okay, guys. You know, I'm, I'm about to do something that I do pretty much on an annual basis uh, from here on. But I do so because some of you have come from different denominational backgrounds. Um, <laughs> some of you have come from Roman Catholic backgrounds. Some of you have come from Baptist backgrounds. Some of you have come from Methodist backgrounds. And I'm telling you, the government um, is they're different in th- places. So let me, let me just point this out to you. In all of Christendom, in all of Christendom, there are there are only three approaches to church government. Um, the first one is what you would call a bishopric, or um, um, we'll just call it a bishopric um, um, form of church government, a, a church of uh, of bishops. Uh, um, another word is hierarchical. It is um, it is government from the church from the top down. It's the government by the bishops down. What's a good example of a bishopric for a, a church that has this kind of government? What'd you say? The Methodist Church. The Methodist Church has this kind of church government. What else? What else? Roman Catholics. That's a bishopric. It's a hierarchical form of church government. <coughs> the, the decisions are made at the top. And they're pressed down. The second form of church government um, is a congregational form of church government. <laughs> and, uh, um, what's a good example of this? Baptist. Oh, I, boy, you got a lot of Baptists out there, don't you? Um, uh, give, give me another example. Was it? No, not Lutherans. No, not the Church of Christ. Uh, have you ever heard of a congregational church up in New England? Um, or most independent churches um, have congregational government. Now, Grace Evan is an independent church. No. But we do not have a congregational form of government. I'm going to say something that I, I've said before, and it got some people really ticked. But I say it again because I still believe it. The form of church government that has the least biblical support to it is this one. I don't know where this came from. This is a government by the people, for the people, and all that business. That's just, I don't know, I I don't see any grounds in that book for this one. I do for this one. The third form of church government that exists out there 
It's called Presbyterian. It's called Presbyterian because of a Greek word, presbyteros. The word Presbyterian comes from that Greek word, presbyteros. It's a word that means elders. If you call me a Presbyterian, you are not identifying my theology. You are identifying my church government. My theology is Reformed theology. I'm a Reformed theologian. In terms of government, I happen to be Presbyterian. It is a government by elders. Now, guys, it is a government that is very much akin to, similar to, patterned on the United States of America. Now, you're sitting out there saying, oh, that's not so, because America is a democracy. Oh, no, it's not. It was never intended to be a democracy, ladies and gentlemen. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. Ladies and gentlemen, America was never intended to be a democracy. It's a republic. What is a republic? A republic is a government that is run by elected representatives. Um, the, the first Continental Congress, um, you know, before we were a country, and all those little colonies out there sent all their representatives to a Continental Congress. And they were there, ladies and gentlemen, not to represent a constituency. They were there trying to find a decent government. What we've got in the chaos of Washington, D.C. is everybody trying to get their thumbs on the, the, the political polls. That was in never intended to be what those people were doing up there. They were supposed to go up there and find out what, what's good for the country, not what's good to get them reelected. My, the reason I say that, ladies and gentlemen, is because elders are supposed to be the same thing. You don't elect elders at Gracie Band, one that represents the women's ministry and one that represents the youth ministry and one that represents the recreational outreach ministry and so that all of their constituents can be represented at the elders' meetings. No, ladies and gentlemen. You elect a group of men because you think they know and can find God and that they can derive from that God what would be good, what would be right, what would be righteousness. Now, guys, let me, let me show you some, some passages. Um, the, the major one, well, uh, go, go to Titus 1 real quick if you can find that. Titus is after 2 Timothy, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. <clears throat> Paul is uh, giving out instructions. Notice what he says in verse 5. He says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what, rem- what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. 
Listen, uh, Titus, uh, here's what I, I left you behind because I want you to, on all those little churches that are in that little area, I want you to, I want you to put some things into order and here's how I want you to do it. I want you to appoint some elders. That's where this form of church government comes from, folks. It is a government by elders. Um, now, th- this is a good one, guys, that you need to, you need to kind of stay, go, go back up one book or two books. Um, to 1 Timothy chapter 5, because this is a key for how things work at, at, at Grace of Anne. Verse 17, 1 Timothy 5, 17. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Do you see that? Guys, there is in Gracie Van a distinction made between, I don't even know how to erase this, uh, Dale. I mean, uh, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> we make a distinction here between what we call a ruling elder and a teaching elder. Do you see that distinction in that text? Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. What does that suggest? It suggests that not all the elders are laboring in preaching and teaching, but there are some who do. Guys, um, we have a session of 12 men. Okay? 12 men called ruling elders. You elect those, you nominate them first, and then you elect those. Now, guys, notice this also. What kind of elders are they? They are ruling. Oh, we don't like that. We don't like to have anybody rule. (laughs) Everybody wants to rule the earth or the world. A ruling elder. What you are electing is a group of men, ladies and gentlemen, who are supposed to be finding decisions or making decisions that reflect a fear of God designed for the welfare and the, the benefit of the people over whom they oversee. They consult and make decisions as to the spiritual welfare of God's people. They guard doctrinal purity. I had a, I had a friend that I graduated from seminary, seminary with. He had, um, let's see, he had seven elders. He said, um, five of them, I'm convinced, are not even Christians. The other two, uh, are so old that they rarely come to the meetings. That was in some place right outside of Jackson, Mississippi. Guys, <clears throat> in these 12 men, there are two other men, Jeff Sample and myself. We are what's called teaching elders. Look at the text. Out of this group, comes me that is charged with the responsibility of teaching and, and what does it say? 
teaching and preaching. Guys, while this guy is doing that, the other 12 are supposed to be doing what? Ruling. Ruling. And they are to rule in such a way that these guys can go feed God's flock. Now, guys, um, let's get to the really controversial. Um, Have you noticed my insistence on the gender? I said men. We elect men. Well, that's kind of that's kind of hokey of you guys. I mean, you know, you're going to take the bookstore in the 21st century. You ought to take out eldership into the 21st century. What's the matter with you people up there? You know, why do you do something crazy like that? Here's why we do it, ladies and gentlemen. Because in 1 Timothy 3, that we're going to look at next week, they give qualifications for these men that are supposed to rule. And one of those qualifications is this, that he must be the husband of one wife. Now tell me, how can a woman be a husband of one wife? I don't know either. I don't think he can. By the way, that text is controversial for a lot of reasons, for two reasons. First of all, it has to, it, it aims at the subject of divorce. That is, can a divorced man be an elder when he's not the husband of one wife? That's part of the controversy. But the other thing is, the overall description of someone who is a husband of one wife. That would make him a male. And may I say this to you, ladies and gentlemen, um, you may not like this one iota. But if you ever leave Gracie Van, and I hope you don't, that always bothers me. And you're looking for another church. Let me just let me just stick this in your computer. You can you can you can do with it as you wish. If you find a church that you kind of like, but they are willing to ordain women as elders, run. And here's why I say that. I know there's some good churches out there probably that have women elders. But it seems to me that they are willing to play fast and loose with the instructions of that book. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I've said this before. This, is, this may be an idle boast on my part. You might say, well, that's a bunch of hooey. Well, yeah, it might be. Just write it all off as an as a aging, pompous jackass. Have at it. I've been called much, much worse. But I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I believe I know how to make Gracie Van bigger by 300 people in a matter of 60 days. I think we could attract another 300 people in 60 days. All we have to do is change that. That is, communicate that we are willing to ordain women. 
and I, and I I wouldn't dream of it because it's playing fast and loose with very clear principles that are derived. Ladies and gentlemen, if I had written this, I wouldn't have written it like that. But we believe, do we not, that God the Holy Spirit wrote those principles and in the description of the elder, it says he must be a husband of one wife. And ladies and gentlemen, I am not a skilled Greek scholar, but I can handle the Greek text. I can tell you what those words are and there's no jumping around them because, well, it really means this. It doesn't mean that. It means a man marrying a woman, one over. That's what it means. Now, it might, it might cramp my style. It might, it might make me a dinosaur. Probably does. But yet, ladies and gentlemen, ultimately, either that's going to be my authority or something else is. So, we have men. Four more minutes. Let me explain this to you guys. Um, these men, we have what is called a rotating session. By the way, the fact that our session rotates is not rooted in any biblical principle. I don't think it's contra-biblical, but it's not found in a, in a text. <clears throat> we have a rotating session, which means this. Each one of these 12 men serves three years. After those three years, he rotates off. So, every year, four of these men rotate off. So, every year, there are four vacancies on this eldership board. So every year, we nominate in the month of October men that you think are qualified for the office of elder. And then, in December, we have a congregational meeting that lasts about eight minutes, and you, hopefully, there is a slate of seven, eight, nine men from which you select four. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you don't do very good at this. You don't nominate very much. And I have tried to tell you, nobody, there is not a nominating committee at Grace Evan. Nobody is in charge of this but you. You know, some of you um, can't nominate because you're not a member of the church. To me, join the church so that you can nominate your leaders. We nominate them all month, and then we have this this vote in the first week in uh, December. After the three years service here, this man, these four men, who are off a year, can come back on to this group if they are renominated and reelected by you they don't automatically come back onto the church uh, come back onto the session now <clears throat> let me let me say one quick thing and I'll quit but did you notice in Titus chapter 1 where Paul says to Titus appoint elders in every city why don't i just appoint them 
First of all, it would probably cost me my job. But let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, why nobody appoints elders anymore. Because, this may confuse you, but um, oh, B.B. Um, Warfield wrote a book years ago called The Closing of the Apostolic Age. I don't think that's what it was called. It was called The Counterfeit Miracles, I think is what it was called. But he talks in there about the closing of the apostolic age. And we are, I mean, not just me, most of Orthodox Christianity is convinced that with the passing of the apostles and those they appointed, there was a closing of the apostolic age and thus a closing of apostolic powers. I do not have apostolic power. And that's why we don't appoint. Now, the New Testament goes on to describe what these men ought to look like. Come back next week and we'll look at both of the passages, Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, and we'll take a look at the qualifications or characteristics or, or, um, or marks of godliness that qualify men to lead you. Let's quit. Lord, um, we are not any smarter than anybody else. Our government is is flawed. We uh, don't have we don't have a perfect government, and yet, oh God, it is certainly a, a government designed to reflect things that you've said in your Word. And so, if we've erred, would you show us where it is, and so that we can change it? But Lord, um, we we recognize that some organizational structure is necessary. So use ours to, um, to lead us and help us get the job done well. But Lord, also would you protect us from the kind of horrible uglinesses that we've seen in our community when Christians get so bent out of shape about their government. Lord, might ours engender trust and confidence in the men that this congregation selects to lead them. Do that, Father, not because we want more comfort, but because we do not want to bring shame to the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks and good night.